Happy Reformation Sunday. This is Reformation Sunday. Do you know that? 500 years ago this week, all the movements coalesced as Dr. Luther hammered up his theses in Wittenberg, and the reworking and the cleansing and the repurposing of the Lord's churches had begun. It is an amazing, world-changing, fascinating process. The Reformation is worthy of reflection and study on this 500th anniversary. Of course, I know what you are secretly thinking. In your favorite uh, John Calvin voice, you are asking, as I say, Happy Reformation Sunday, you're asking, what difference has it made in my life? Uh, thank you so much for asking. It's an excellent question. I appreciate the question. The answer is, <clears throat> it's made every difference. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, let me just show you one little thing of what the Reformation has done for you. And this is no little thing, but it's just one I selected. This is from Lewis Spitz's book. Uh, he says, people now, after the Reformation, could understand this experience of salvation by God's grace alone, bestowed on them as a gift through faith without dependence upon human merits. All God's people said, oh my goodness. Did you just hear what I just read to you? Salvation by God's grace alone, a gift, not through your efforts. And you said, amen. Come on, amen. let's try it again. All God's people said, amen. amen. But even if you are not a Christian, even if you're not a Christian, the reestablishment of a biblical foundation for God's churches has positively changed the world. It has positively changed your life. You would not enjoy the freedom that you know today if it were not for the Protestant Reformation. As uh, Britt Alec Ryrie explains on the quote there in your notes, you, you got a bulletin when you came in. Open it up. In the middle of that, you'll see on the left-hand side this quote from Alec Ryrie's book, Protestants. He says, Protestants have helped give the modern world the strange counterintuitive notion of limited government. The principle that the first duty of even the most righteous ruler is to respect his subjects' freedom and allow them to live their lives as they see fit. These ideals, which seem natural to our own age, are in the span of human history very unusual indeed, that we should all have a say in choosing our own rulers and that those rulers' powers over us should be limited. These principles are in obvious tension as every society that has tried to combine liberty and democracy has discovered. Without Protestantism and its peculiar preconceptions, preoccupations, that strange and marvelous synthesis could never come into being as it has, close quote. And the same could be said for literacy, education, and work. Each received honor and became widespread because of the Reformation. So, give thanks for Reformation Sunday. And let's keep the Reformation in mind. Do this. I want you to keep the Reformation in mind because this is so cool. Many of the big themes of the Reformation are found in our text today. Open your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and I'll show you. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and let's start in verse 5. What then is Apollos? And what is Paul? They're servants through whom you believe, and each has the role the Lord has given them. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Now, the one planting and the one watering are one in purpose, and each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's co-workers. You're God's field, God's building. It is all about God. Did you notice this? In what we just read, God was mentioned six times. Just in those few verses, six times. The reformers summarized this truth, that, that life is all about God, with a Latin phrase, soli deo gloria. It's your first fancy Latin phrase for the day, men and women. Soli deo gloria. On the count of three, you get to say it. One, two, three. 
Soli Deo Gloria, very good. It means glory to God alone. Soli Deo Gloria is the big idea in this passage. That's why, uh, look at the metaphors Paul uses for his church. Coworkers, field, building, who, to whom do they all belong? God, they're gods. You see, the Corinthians were idiotically defining themselves by parties and by people. That takes glory away from God and focuses it on platforms and on people. Here, here's how Paul scathingly indicted them at the beginning of this letter. Uh, chapter one, he said this. What I'm saying is this. Each of you says, I'm with Paul, or I'm with Paulus, or I'm with Kephas, or I'm with Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were, were you baptized in Paul's name? And the answer is, thank God, no. Even the ones who said that they followed Christ didn't really because they didn't live according to his name. They didn't live in Jesus' name. These numbskulls were more concerned about, they were more concerned about their factions than they were about God. And of course, we look at that and we say, thank goodness we're not like that. Right, Democrats? Right, Republicans? Right, Calvinists? Dispensationalists? Social justice warriors? Amillennialists? Et cetera, et cetera, ad nauseum. Oh, oh, but, but pastor, our distinctions matter, we say. We're, we're not like those nuts. They were just being divisive. We're needed. We have to fight God's battles for him because he isn't big enough to handle things on his own without us. You see, on second thought, maybe we are eroding God's glory after all. Maybe our divisions rob God of his glory just as theirs did. We can disagree but we mustn't let division steal God's glory. First big idea here, soli, deo, gloria. Second point Paul subtly but powerfully makes is those who reject roles are absolutely out of focus. Now, notice the roles that are replete in this text. Everyone doesn't do the same thing, but each plays a significant part. This is a major theme in Paul's correspondence with the, the Corinthians. Uh, apparently, a widespread nonsensical form of justice had taken root in the thinking there. They, they seem to have assumed that everyone had to have the exact same role or it wasn't fair. And once again, this is incredibly similar to what we see here today, isn't it? If, if, if men and women today aren't afforded the exact same roles as each other, we cry foul, right? If every child doesn't get a trophy, if every child doesn't have the lead role in the play, we sue, right? Such role pretense is incredibly obtuse, and I would tell you it is counterproductive. And again, it exposes a lack of focus on God. When everything is directed to God's grace and majesty, you know what happens? We are all delighted to fill whatever role he gives us as equals before him. This is why I find it hard to fully trust Christians who try to pretend there are no roles in life. Not only do they miss a reality that even the Lord of the flies understood which is that humans will always organize into roles. They will, how many of you had to read that horrible book when you're in school? Therapy helps. Um, <laughs> it does teach one good thing. Humans will always organize into roles. Not only do they ignore that, these supposedly role-less people have an even more serious problem, and here's what it is. They are inevitably looking at humans, not at God. In, in fact, they cannot turn to focus on God or his word for fear that it will shake their self-centered humanism. They, this is why communism always must adhere to the absurdity of atheism and why it always devolves into human tyranny. God is the point, and our very real roles are merely ways for us to serve him. Read with me, please, Romans chapter 11, verse 36, which tells us that God is the point. Let's all read it together. Romans 11, 36. For from him and through him and to him 
are all things. To him be the glory forever, amen. Amen. Now, there's a third idea in what we read from 1 Corinthians 3. There are rewards based on how one uses one's gifts. Look at verse eight. God says, each will receive his own reward according to his labor. Not according to human convention, not according to human privilege, but in absolute divine fairness. And that leads us straight into the idea in the next section. Go to verse 10. According to God's grace that was given to me, I have laid a foundation as a skilled master builder, and another builds on it. But each one must be careful how he builds on it, for no one can lay any other foundation than what has been laid down. That foundation is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on that foundation with gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become obvious, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. The fire will test the quality of each one's work. If anyone's work that he has built survives, he will receive a reward. But if anyone's work is burned up, it will be lost. But he will be saved, yet it will be like an escape through fire. Paul takes this metaphor shift to the building, from the field to the building, and he points out that the testing reveals rewards. By the way, this is the headline atop the right side of your notes. Look there. The testing reveals rewards. The foundation is set, and it is Jesus alone. Again, our reforming forebears had a simple Latin phrase they came up with to remember this. Solus Christus means Christ alone. It's all about Christ alone. Uh, solus Christus, count of three. One, two, three. Solus Christus, Christ alone. We, we sing, in Christ alone I take my step, right? We, in Christ alone we build our lives. We read that, we sing about it, but practically what is it? What does it look like? What does it look like to build on the foundation of Jesus alone? So many of you are wise. So to get some practicality for this, I, I pulled together a little focus group and I posed that question to a few of the people in our congregation and they gave some awesome answers. I just wanna share with you a few of them. The focus group I pulled together, I asked, what does it look like to build on the foundation of Jesus alone? First person I asked, very excitable guy, and he said, do, do what God wants you to do, create. That's what it means to build on the foundation of Christ alone. Second person I talked to said, well, first, ensure you don't have other foundations imbalancing your structure. Check for family or money or self-image, things that unconsciously actually define most of us. Very well said. Another person said, read scripture, meditate and study so you know Jesus, and then you can live out his divine design. Fourth person I talked to said, well, you can't beat the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' great ethic. He said, living out that ethic equals building on Jesus. Excellent answers about construction. Every time we've constructed a church building here, our senior executive pastor has to go through continual inspections uh, with the city. Now, the biggest of those is at the end when the fire department comes out and determines whether the building is actually acceptable or not. In a somewhat similar way, each one's construction will be judged by Jesus at the bima, that is the judgment seat of Christ. Paul here takes a very visible part of Corinth. One of the largest things in Corinth is the, is the huge rostrum that dominated the agora, the rostrum in Latin, bima in Greek. It was the proconsul's platform. And this is where the Roman proconsul would give or remove rewards from Roman citizens who were in Corinth. 
This was not the normal law court. The, the normal law court was in a rotating area. It, it wasn't actually a building. It rotated from building to building in another part of the Agora around here to the right where, where Paul worked and, and made tents and awnings, okay? This was a special place. The bima was where the tribune or the proconsul spoke for the emperor. Uh, he would order special gifts. He would recognize achievements or he would strip honors away from Roman citizens. Now, the rostrum was particularly used for people like Erastus. Erastus is mentioned in this book. Uh, he, he was a Christian who was also a very high-ranking Roman official. He was the director of public works at Corinth. So people like Erastus had to give an accounting before the bima. They had to stand and allow the proconsul to judge their efforts on behalf of Rome. One very important aspect to note about the bima. Listen carefully. The bima never removed a person's citizenship. Even if somebody were stripped of all rewards, even if they were left, and this could happen, even if they were left with no personal property at all because they had, they had mishandled public funds, even in that horrible situation, no Roman could become un-Roman at the Bema. So Paul takes this familiar Corinthian background and he says, hey, Christians, Christians, you're going to face a very similar kind of judgment. We're going to stand before the son of the emperor, and we are going to give an accounting for all that we have done for the kingdom of heaven. If we have built with lasting and precious means, that will be revealed. Likewise, if we construct our work in a shoddy fashion, it will all burn up. It will all be blown down. It will be exposed as temporal and temporary. In fact, I think that this passage is likely the original inspiration for the very, very old fairy tale of the three little pigs. Now, this judgment is clearly only for Christians. Remember, it's for citizens of heaven, just as the bima was for Roman citizens. There is a different judgment for non-Christians. Now, sometimes believers in Jesus will read this. They'll recognize that. They will sigh with relief and say, wow, thank goodness I can't lose my citizenship. I will go to heaven because of solus Christus. I'm saved by Christ alone, not my works. It doesn't matter what I do. Is that really all you want? Do you think that's really best now and forever? Do you think the best thing for you is just to live like hell and escape as through fire, keeping nothing of permanence with which to enjoy God and glorify him in the kingdom to come? That is wasteful. That is inappropriate. It is foolish. Let, let me be very clear. God is saying that if you choose to live this way, if you build poorly on your salvation in Jesus, you will regret it. You will be exposed. Doing good in imitation of Jesus is the natural and right course for Christians. Some in Corinth didn't follow that course. They were thus warned of very serious loss. Likewise, some of us live as if it's all about me. We follow our own desires instead of growing up in Jesus' gracious, awesome work. And if we don't change, our loss at the Bema will be no less catastrophic than theirs. Here's how Paul summarized the Bema in another letter. I'd like you to read it with me, please. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he's talking about the same issue. Uh, you read the underlined text of verse 10. For we must all appear before the tribunal of Christ for what he has done in the body, whether good or worthless. Build well, my friends. Please build well. Speaking of building, Paul breathlessly jumps back to his earlier metaphor in verse 9, and he says this in verse 16. Don't you yourselves know that you are God's sanctuary 
and that the Spirit of God lives in you. If anyone destroys God's sanctuary, God will destroy him. For God's sanctuary is holy, and that is what you are. Paul here reminds Christians that churches are living temples of the living Lord. Remember, Corinth was home to one of the most famous and beautiful temples in all the world, the old one. It was old even when Paul was there, the old one to Apollo. Uh, this dominated that agora where Paul made tents and awnings. And according to pagan thought, the very dwelling place of the God was always connected to the temple. The, the temple was where the God could be found. In fact, the temple was the only place where the God could be contacted. The word for that was naos. Uh, it appears three times in your text. It's the word we translate sanctuary. In pagan thought, the naos was the very limited place where the deity could be met and worshiped. But get this, this is so cool. The New Testament uses naos very differently. In fact, the New Testament, the New Testament uses naos in ways that are boldly scandalous to the Greco-Roman world. God uses naos of these four things. Uh, in the Gospel of John, naos is used of Jesus' physical body. Scandalous idea. This is God is what he's saying. Naos is used of the universal church, all people of all times and places who believed in Jesus Christ. Naos is used of individual uh, Christians, uh, of, of me. And naos is used of the local church. And that's what's going on in this passage. That last one is Paul's point here. Each church is, in fact, a living sanctuary. Um, in the original language, you, in verse 16, is second person plural. Uh, I don't wanna bore you with that, but what that means is it cannot be an individual uh, it's, it's plural, and it can't be the universal church, all people, because it's second person, not, not third person. So the best translation, I'm being totally serious here, is y'all. <laughs> y'all is biblical. <laughs> and y'all, each local church, every local church is a sanctuary to God. Okay, with that in mind, let's, let's read it again. Don't you know, don't you yourselves know that y'all are God's sanctuary, and the Spirit of God lives in y'all? If anyone destroys God's sanctuary, God will destroy him. For God's sanctuary is holy, and that's what y'all are, right? Three overpowering conclusions here. First, local churches are not inanimate buildings. They are communities of very living people redeemed by God's grace. In the words of Dr. Frankenstein, it's alive! That's what a church is. Therefore, each church should be seen as a redeemed community. The local church is y'all. It is a community of people who are together, a sanctuary of the Lord. All God's people said? Amen. Amen. Secondly, the living God indwells each local church. Therefore, each church should be primarily concerned with holiness. Sanctuaries are to be holy. Contrast that with what we've seen in churches throughout human history. The major goal for most churches, and I hate to say this, but it's true. The major goal for most churches has been happiness. And we still see that today, despite the Reformation. Most Christians, most churches are absorbed with finding happiness. Now, while happiness is not de facto evil, it is way too small a goal. As God's naos, we should be places and people of holiness. When we're holy, you know what happens when we're holy? We gain joy, which is far, far more valuable than mere happiness. Third, God will not let destruction of his temple go unpunished. Therefore, if you divide a local church, you are in serious trouble. How serious? Well, the word uh, that we translate destroy is a very sober Greek word, thero. Uh, here, here's how it was used, just in the close context of this writing. Aristotle, uh, whom Paul studied, used this word often, and he used it to describe chaos and, and devolution. Uh, Josephus, who was writing near Paul's time, he used thero to depict a catastrophe. 
Uh, and Philo of Alexandria, who writes a little bit after Paul, he used thero for physical death. Now think, do you want chaos, catastrophe, and physical death to invade your life? If not, I suggest you stop whining, complaining, dividing people, and gossiping. God is not kidding. When I was a very young church deacon, a bunch of malcontents in the church I was at then uh, tried to use me in their palace coup that they were putting together against our elder board. They were, they were mad at the elders. They were trying to put together this little takeover. I was fairly naive, and thankfully, I knew I was naive. So instead of responding to them, I went to a wise old seminary professor I knew, and I asked for his advice. And Dr. Stan Toussaint told me something I'll never forget. He said, run, son. Run from it. If you divide God's church, he will divide you. Now, read the next part of this thought section, verse 18. No one should deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, he must become foolish by talking to Dr. Toussaint. So, sorry, I inserted that. So that he can become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God, since it is written, a uh, quote from Job, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, a quote from the Psalms, the Lord knows that the reasonings of the wise are meaningless. So no one should boast in human leaders, for everything is yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Kephas or the world or life or death or things present, things come, everything is yours. And you belong to Christ. And Christ belongs to God. Human reasoning is upside down. Don't, don't be deceived. Empty philosophy is just that. It's empty. Ironically, it's that emptiness that can make God's wisdom seem absurd to the world. Um, I cannot remember an age when I couldn't swim. Uh, my people tell me that I swam across the pool before I could even walk well. I love the water. Anybody else like to swim? Anybody else like to swim? Okay. When you were kids and you were at the pool where I lived all day long if I wasn't playing baseball, when you, when you were at the pool, did, did you guys play underwater games a lot? Yeah, at our club, we did all the time. We, we uh, you know, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11 years old, we would, we would play charades underwater. We'd love that game. We would see who could hold their breath the longest underwater. We would practice our flip turns and, and do our dolphin kicks over and over underwater like you do all the time. And, and one thing we marveled at, and we never quite got over this, was how differently sound is underwater. Sounds that are, that are underwater with you actually travel faster than they do in the air because the molecules are closer together. And, and so you could hear very clearly underwater. But if anything wasn't underwater with you, you couldn't hear it at all, which was very convenient when your mom was telling you it was time to get out. <laughs> and when you come up, have you noticed this? When you come up for air after some time underneath, it's really loud. It's really loud and confusing up in the air. It, it takes a bit for things to make sense. That's what life is like in this pool of worldly thought. Down there, one can't hear God's words well. And when you do pop up and hear some of God's words, they, they seem loud and confusing. But for example, take the biblical idea that salvation is by faith alone. By the way, the reformers dubbed this one sola fide. Seems crazy to the world. Faith alone, sola fide. Uh, sola fide. One, two, three. Sola fide. But if you know the truth, you know that sola fide is the only thing that makes sense. You know that we can't live underwater. We, we were made for an airy life that we cannot reach on our own. It is by faith alone in Jesus that we really breathe and live. That's the truth that you Christians know. And that's why the paragraph ends declaring that all is yours. Not because you earned it, but because you are in Christ. You're rescued from the depths and you're enjoying real air with him. Amen? And since that's what you and I have, since we have everything that matters, we're responsible for what we do with it. 
That's why God next takes us through a discussion of faithful stewardship. Uh, go to chapter four, verse one. A person should consider us in this way, as servants of Christ and managers of God's mysteries. In this regard, it is expected of managers that each one of them be found faithful. It is of little importance to me that I should be evaluated by you or any human court. In fact, I don't even evaluate myself, for I'm not conscious of anything against myself, but I'm not justified by this. The one who evaluates me is the Lord. Therefore, don't judge anything prematurely before the Lord comes, who will bring both to light what is hidden in darkness and reveal the intentions of hearts. And then praise will come to each one from God. We are held accountable by the same God who empowers us. So hold all human praise lightly. God will judge. Obviously, we already discussed this in the previous context. Here, let's deal with, I want, I want us to deal with one problem that I see a lot that arises sometimes from these verses. You see, sometimes Christians misunderstand this to say that all human evaluation is unhelpful or unnecessary. It's a ridiculous idea because hundreds of passages in the scriptures, including dozens from Paul himself, tell Christians to examine themselves and to, have, and to have many counselors for wisdom. The issue here is a contrast, okay? It's all about the bima, right? It's a place of rewards. I don't judge myself now as worthy of rewards. I don't take praise, good heavens, I don't take praise from people as an accurate assessment. I wait for the only judgment that is always accurate, God's. As verse 5 says, he will give each one truly deserved praise. There, there's, a, there's a time contrast here. The day of the Lord will reveal all things accurately. So hold human praise lightly now and wait for the rewards that really matter. Got it? All right. Now, Paul applies this principle to himself in a, in a sign of truly healthy leadership. He applies this to himself. Go to verse 6. Read the next part. Verse 6. Now, brothers, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos, their other teacher, for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the saying, nothing beyond what is written. The purpose is that none of you will be inflated with pride in favor of one person over another. For who makes you so superior? What do you have that you didn't receive? If, in fact, you did receive it, why do you boast as if you hadn't received it? Oh, you're already full. You're already rich. You've begun to reign as kings without us. I wish you did reign so we could also reign with you. I think God's displayed us, the apostles, in last place, like men condemned to die. We've become a spectacle to the world and to angels and to men. We're fools for Christ, but you're wise in Christ. We're weak, but you're strong. You're distinguished, but we're dishonored. Up to the present hour, we're both hungry and thirsty. We're poorly clothed, roughly treated, homeless. We labor working with our own hands. When we're reviled, we bless. When we're persecuted, we endure it. When we're slandered, we respond graciously. Even now, we're, we're like the world's garbage, like the, the dirt everyone scrapes off their sandals. There are a few things we point out about this passage in your notes. First, Scripture is the only measure. The Reformers developed another great summary phrase for this. They called it sola scriptura, Scripture alone. One, two, three, sola scriptura. One, two, three, sola scriptura. Nothing beyond what is written. If it isn't in the Bible, it doesn't have any hold on you. For example, 1522, early days of the Reformation, the city of Zurich passed a law that made it illegal to eat any meat during Lent. Now, this, this, was, a, this was a strong arm move, okay? It was, a, it was a strong arm move by the Roman church and the state to show that they could work together to control people's lives. In response, a bunch of Christian tradesmen and priests got together at this house. Some of you who've been to Europe with me have been there. We went to that house. And inspired by this passage, exactly what you're reading today, a priest named Ulrich Zwingli 
who became the great reformer from Zurich, Zwingli said this to the group, and I quote, no Christian is bound to do those things which God has not decreed. Therefore, one may eat at all times all food. This was one of the first practical applications of sola scriptura. And do you know what those, those citizens gathered in Herr Froschauer's house did in response to this truth? They ate sausages. <laughs> Believe it or not, that sausage rebellion changed the world. And I am not exaggerating. With, within one year, the citizens of eastern Switzerland were experiencing freedom on a scale that had never been seen before. I, lo I love the way um, the Swiss artist uh, Regula Bochler puts it. Frau Bochler says, For the Reformation in Germany began with 95 learned theses. In Switzerland, it all started with a couple of sausages. <laughs> Would you like to change the world around you? Would you like to spread freedom? Then eat sausages! No, seriously, follow Scripture alone. Nothing beyond what is written. All God's people said? Amen. Amen. Next, everything we have is from God. Look, look, there is nothing you can earn on your own effort alone. Our justification before God is granted by grace. Our sanctification is empowered by God's grace. We live, we breathe, we move only by God's power. The Reformation summary of this, by the way, is sola gratia. It means by grace alone. Everything's received. Sola gratia, by grace alone. Count of three, sola gratia. One, two, three. Sola gratia, by grace alone. Um, let me get some volunteers. Tell me something you have. Okay, raise your hand and just share with us uh, a, a possession, a talent, a blessing, uh, any blessing, any possession, any talent in your life. What's something you have? A jacket. Very nice. You do have a jacket. Yes. Your family. Amen. Thank God for that. Yes. A, a video game set. Which one? The Wii U, it's awesome. I just got a Switch. It's so cool. Anyway, sorry. Yeah, it's very, very cool. Somebody over here, what's something you have? Yes. An iPad. Yeah. On which you are the Minecraft master. Let's be honest. No one can match you. Something you have? Leadership qualities. Well, and said like a leader. That was very bold, well spoken. All right. What do all those things have in common? From jackets to, to things to families to leadership qualities. What do all of them have in common? They are all from God. They are all gifts from God. Sola gratia. It's not about you. James addressed this. I'd like you to read it with me. James chapter 1, verse 17. Let's all just read it together. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Amen. Finally, in, in what we read, Paul, did you notice this? He sarcastically pops the bubble of false pride. The Corinthians were so sure that they were the I am the greatest. They were so proud of their gifts and their wealth. You know what they're acting like? They're acting like this life is the end all, as if this is Jesus' promised kingdom. Paul pops that nonsensical bloom. He says, this is not, this is not the physical kingdom. By the way, these verses also destroy the lunacy behind um, elevation or gateway theologies. Uh, if you haven't bumped into those, just praise God and don't worry about it. For those of you that, that have spent time or have friends in prosperity churches, you've heard about elevation theology or gateway theology. It is nonsense, and this passage shows that. We are not experiencing perfection here and now. Look, look at the text. Paul's being treated like garbage, which is what Jesus actually promised we would face at least some of the time until he returns. Pride in ourselves always leads to weird theology and foolish living. Paul's doing here what good people do for you. 
Good people pop your pride bubble, reminding you that everything you have is a gift from God. The amazing golfer Arnold Palmer had such a Pauline influence in his life, it was his father. I wanna read you a short little story from Palmer's book, A Life Well Played. Um, a Life Well Played by Arnold Palmer, chapter called Staying Grounded. My dad never stopped giving me guidance about how I should uh, look at and live my life and career. By 1961, I had already established myself as a perennial winner and a major champion with two master's titles and the 1960 US Open. But my father was determined that no matter how much I won, how successful I became, how much I earned, he wanted me to remain humble. He wanted me to stay grounded and focus on my work and not get too caught up with the accomplishments. One of the best lessons he ever gave me came after I had won the 1961 British Open at Royal Birkdale. I had been dining with dukes and princes over the course of an entire week, and I came back to the United States a conquering hero. Naturally, I was feeling pretty good about myself. When I got back to Latrobe, uh, that's in Pennsylvania, a small town where he's from, I was very excited about my victory and the chance to share it with my dad. My dad greeted me with open arms. I could see how happy he was for me, but in his second breath he said, now, why don't you put down that claret jug? I need your help mowing the back nine. <laughs> and he did, by the way. He put it on the kitchen table and he went and mowed the back nine. Speaking of fathers, our passage closes by showing that God's leader all the people whom God has blessed to be servant leaders, and that's all of us, God's leader corrects like a good parent. That's how we do it. Look at verse 14. I'm not writing this to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. For you can have 10,000 instructors in Christ, but you can't have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. This is why I've sent Timothy to you. He is my dearly loved and faithful son in the Lord. He will remind you about my ways in Christ Jesus, just as I teach everywhere in every church. Now, some are inflated with pride, as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. And I will know not the talk, but the power of those who are inflated with pride. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What do you want? Should I come to you with a rod, or in love and a spirit of gentleness? Paul is a spiritual father to these brethren. And just as people learn from good earthly parents, you must do what the righteous parent instructs or there will be consequences. Why did Paul send his right-hand man, Timothy, to Corinth? Because Timothy can set them straight. He can help them live the way God intends, building rightly on the foundation of Jesus. This paragraph that we just read in 1 Corinthians 4 is very similar. It struck me as very similar to the first chapter of a wonderful book, uh, William McRaven, Admiral William McRaven's 2017 book, Make Your Bed. Uh, it's a book about what he learned from being a Navy SEAL and then overseeing all the Navy SEALs. Let me just give you a quick summary of McRaven's first chapter. Here's what it's basically about. He says, if you want to change the world, start off making your bed. Here's a quote. He says, if you can't do the little things right, you will never do the big things right. Make your bed. Do the little things correctly, just as the parent instructs. If you do so, you're in a position to change the world. Refuse to do so, and you will be sorry. Speaking of being sorry, notice there is no escaping earthly consequences. Not, not just eternal consequences. There's no escaping earthly consequences. There is no excuse for not using your powers for good. God sees, he cares. Paul is coming to check on these brethren. Now, he can come with painful correction, which he did, or he can come with encouraging gentleness. It is up to them. 
Think about, think about this. When a child is given clear instruction and that child rebels, what does a healthy parent do? What does a healthy parent do when that child rebels? Punish them. Why are you afraid to say it? Chastise them. You cause them pain so that they will learn that that is not healthy. Playing in the street is not a good life plan, right? You help change the kid's mind. But when that child obeys and does what the parents instructed, what does the good parent do? Applaud, cheer, reinforce. That's the way you do it. Indeed, well done. It's up to the child in response to what he's going to receive. I, I know you don't see a whole lot of healthy parenting like that these days, but it remains the right way to train a child or an adult for that matter. Well, Paul's a good servant leader. He's a loving parent. Listen, he chastises people now precisely so that they can receive great rewards in eternity. Remember the main idea of the passage. If one builds poorly on the foundation of Jesus, he or she is going to regret it. Better to be pained now than experience the loss of opportunity forever. Right? Okay, so with that in mind, look, look here at the, on the screen. I've got the five solos of the Reformation up here, each of which relates to a part of our text today. Look at those five solos and ask yourself this. Where am I weak? We must continually repent and reform. Are, are, you, are you giving God glory? Are, are, you, are you giving God glory? Are, let's be honest. Are you really living with very little thought of the triune God at all in your day-to-day -day life? Is scripture, uh, is scripture your rule? Or are you just swaying with whatever the tides are of the common culture? Be honest. Do, do, you, live, uh, do you live sola gratia? Do you, do you recognize and thank God for everything, noting that all good gifts are from him? Or do you see yourself as your prime provider, the prime mover in your life? Do, do you build on the foundation of solus Christus, Jesus alone, or have you, got, have you got a syncretized, shifty foundation that's, that's part Jesus, but part anything else? Get that straight right now. Because even if it's a good thing, you must quit making it foundational. Nothing but Jesus is a worthwhile basis for your life. And what about, uh, what about sola fide in your life? Are you living by faith, breathing the, breathing the clear air of trust in Christ, or are you underwater with worry and worldliness? Let's pray about this together. Pray with me, please. Father, I pray for myself and my brothers and sisters. I pray that you will love us enough to smite us in each of these areas because quite frankly, we, we are not living these solas well in so many ways and that must change. Lord, for the sake of chastisement that you bring in lives now, but much more seriously for what is gonna happen to me and to my brothers and sisters at the Bema where rewards are stripped away because we didn't use well what you gave us, I beg you to convict us. This is serious stuff. So many of my friends are so accomplished, and that's wonderful, but I beg you to let them put down, help them put down that claret jug and get out and mow the back nine. Let them get to work in calling sin, sin and living according to your grace to build on the foundation of Jesus. And by the way, speaking of the foundation of Jesus, Lord, I pray for anybody who's studying with me that does not know Jesus as Savior. Draw them to you, please. Friend, right now, listen. 
You need to respond to Jesus. He is the only foundation for life. You are a sinner. You are separated from God. The bema is not your future. There is a great white throne judgment, and it is terrible, and it's fair and appropriate. And you don't want it. You deserve it, but God loves you so much. You know what he did? He sent his only son, Jesus, God the Son, who died on the Roman cross on purpose to pay for your sin. If you trust him, you know he conquered death, and you get to follow him in everlasting life. Trust him right now. Just talk to God and say, I trust the Lord Jesus, the one who is God. I give my life to him. I I believe on him alone for my foundation. If you just prayed to trust Jesus, raise your hand, please. Good for you. Amen. Father, thank you for these who trust Jesus, new and old. And I pray that in everything we do today, we will, we will build on the foundation of Jesus. In our offering we're about to take in everything we do. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.